Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to a special edition of The ER. We recently hosted our fifth annual Diplomat of the Year Award celebration. Each year, FP selects individuals or organizations that have done exceptional work in the field of diplomacy and honors them at a dinner in Washington. C40's Cities Climate Leadership Group was this year's Green Diplomat of the Award winner uh, for the work tackling climate change over the past decade through a network of more than 80 major global cities and their mayors with the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and climate risks. Paris Mayor An Hidalgo was on hand to accept the award. Hafsat Abiola, founder of the Kudarat Initiative for Democracy, received this year's Citizen Diplomat of the Year Award for being a champion of democracy in her native Nigeria and empowering young women through leadership development. And finally, FP honored Google as this year's Diplomat of the Year, recognizing the organization's digital diplomacy through empowering citizens globally, their work knitting together the world into a new kind of community, which after all is what lies at the core of all diplomacy. Accepting the award on Google's behalf was executive chairman of Alphabet Inc., Eric Schmidt. The following is the conversation that Eric and I had at the awards ceremony about the future of technology, AI, and of digital diplomacy. I hope you enjoy it. It's been a, it's been a great evening. It's been wonderful talking to all of you. It's been wonderful listening to Mayor Hidalgo and to Hafsad. Um, but as I said before, there is a theme linking all of these discussions. And the theme is tied to our Diplomat of the Year Award winner, and that is connection. Last year, John Kerry won our Diplomat of the Year Award. The year before that, Christine Lagarde won our Diplomat of the Year Award. The year before that, the most distinguished career foreign service officer in recent history, Bill Burns, won our Diplomat of the Year Award. All of these were fairly traditional choices within the context of diplomacy. But we felt diplomacy was changing. Um, as I said, I, I started out, you know, the first job I ever had was at Bell Labs, and so I sort of think of the world in the context of science and technology. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about foreign policy in the context of science and technology. And the changes that are coming are so transformational that they really require us to stop, set aside preconceptions, and to reimagine the world. Fortunately for some of us, there are people reimagining the world all the time. There are people who have been architects of this change, architects of the change that I spoke about earlier that is leading to that moment in history that is just around the corner when each and every man and woman on the planet is effectively connected to everyone else, can reach out and touch anyone else, can share their views with anyone else, can connect, as Hafsat said, can band together, as um, An Hidalgo was talking about, and change the world using these tools. And so as we thought of that world, we thought, Diplomacy is being redefined. World affairs is being redefined. The nature of human relations is being redefined by technology. We should acknowledge that. Now, no company has had a bigger impact on that than Google. 
We think of Google, depending on when we first encountered Google, as a, as a search engine and then as many, many other things. But what we should also think of Google as is something that billions of people share, a common vocabulary, a source of knowledge, links in the things that change what we believe, how we see the world. This is profound. 20 years ago, there were only three or four things that could be defined in billions, right? China, India was getting there, the Catholic Church, Islam, maybe four. Today, there are a few new ones on that list. Google, Facebook, whatever Yahoo was, maybe you could explain that to me. Um, there, there are a few new communities that have emerged that have really changed the nature of the map. And changing the nature of the map is changing diplomacy. And that's why it was so natural for us to choose Google as our diplomat of the year. And it was especially wonderful that Eric Schmidt, the executive chairman of Alphabet, which is the parent company of this, could come here. And the reason I say that is not for all the things that you know about Eric Schmidt, but I don't know, it must have been a year and a half ago, you and Jared came up to my office, and you'd been traveling around the world, and you started talking about what you'd seen in the world. And it wasn't, we have a problem with tech regulation here or bandwidth there. It was, how does this change Syria? How does this change North Korea? You'd written a book about it. And to me, this was particularly striking because one of the questions that had been on my mind had to do with the nature of change. You know, it took 350 years to get us from Gutenberg's first book to 100 million books on the planet. And it took us 90 years to get from the first telephone to 100 million telephones on the planet. And it took 33 days to get from the first issue of Angry Birds to 100 million people playing Angry Birds. Including you. And, possibly me, also. Um, that's a pace of change we've never seen before. So not only do we have the biggest transformations, transformations that are changing everything, but we also have transformations that are changing our lives faster than they've ever changed. And the question is, how do we keep up? How do institutions keep up? How do we keep up in terms of our own understanding of them? As I asked in a TED talk about a year, year and a half ago, where are the philosophers? Somewhere between the Gutenberg Bible and the First Amendment to the US Constitution, there was John Locke in the Glorious Revolution. We've had this transformation in a decade. Where is John Locke? Where are the people framing these issues so that we ensure that the positives outweigh the negatives? You've been struggling this. You've been, you, you, you're doing this. And that's why you're here. And I'd like to talk a little bit about it. And I'd like to start with this election. Okay, now I, I, we're not gonna get super political, although you can if you want. <laughs> 
But where's David Sanger? Is he still here? Has he gotten his food and gone home? Oh, there, there, good. Um, yeah, no, thanks for sticking around. Um, but he and I were talking about this election, and we were saying the thing that is most striking about this election is not the thing that's being covered. This election was more transformed by technology than any election in American history. Think of what we were talking about. Emails, WikiLeaks, hack of the DNC, potential hack of the, of the, the electoral college. A president who uses Twitter. A, a president-elect who uses Twitter. And in yeah. fact, a president-elect who used Twitter in a way that no one would have predicted, which is this is the first election. No, no, not that way. The, the, in, in, <laughs> seriously, you know, give, give him a week. This is the first election in modern history where the price, the cost of the election has actually gone down because he used social media instead of traditional media. So how, how do you view that? Do you see this as a watershed? I do. Let, let me start by saying it. I'm pretty awed by the two women on stage before me. So I'm still sort of recovering from that awesomeness. Um, And, and uh, as a loyal reader of your magazine for many years, I'm glad to see you're still doing this. I think that the... You mean that FP is? Not that I'm like so old that I shouldn't still be doing this. I actually think, I actually think you're going to become one of these philosopher types oh, as you get older. Thank you. Right, you have, those, you have the skill and you thank have the insight. You have this upcoming book. I mean, it's going to be pretty good. Thank you. Uh, well, all of you who work at FP, please remember that. <laughs> No, I was struck in the election by the last month was defined by everything except policy and those kinds of things. It was, de it was defined by all of the things that, that you mentioned on both sides. Uh, and indeed today, you know, the, the key questions are the, the entire consensus around polling, which was driven by digital media and so forth, uh, why was that wrong and so forth and so on. I don't think, I don't think people have even answered those questions. So my, my view of the presidential election is we have a new president, we should congratulate the president-elect. It's a significant achievement. Um, and now let's let, let's let him form his government and let's see what happens. And I think we should keep an open mind. Um, from a technological policy, if you go back to your argument that you made earlier, the, the issues that we face, are we're going to face whether, they're, whether we have a Republican president or a Democratic president, and the global see it as well. I'm quite convinced that the kind of crazy stuff that we've gone through on the political side will be mirrored in other countries, right? That, that in fact, the, the, the using information and the misinformation and the kinds of things that everyone here on both sides was upset about is a reproducible and replicable problem uh, in other countries. How do you know the truth of something? How did you know your particular feed was correct? How did you know uh, Jared's team called Jigsaw uh, for example, just released a product uh, that's essentially an anti-troll product, and Jared could do a better describing it, but it goes something like this. Stereotype is you have, a, I'll use a stereotype of a woman who feels strongly about something, she posts something online, and then she gets this horrific hatred attack on her personally and viscerally. And she talks to her friends and she said, I have no idea there were that many evil people, mostly men, in the world. And the answer is, there aren't. It was an automated attack, right? Very interesting, very interesting. So Jared's team has managed to figure out ways to detect that. So that's the first step in this sort of notion of figuring, figuring out how we're gonna deal with modern discourse in the connected age, which is the theory of your evening tonight. It is, and I, you know, I think one of the questions, and I'd, I'd like to start with a hard question, then we'll go to some easier ones. <laughs> but um, 
one of the core questions that comes out of this is what are we doing to make sure that all this connectivity, all this data, all this access to processing power, which could be a force for good, ends up actually being a force for good? Because we've seen the trolls. We've also seen in this last election cycle that social media often produces more heat than light. We've seen that social media produces a double echo chamber effect, where you not only have the echo chamber of all these types here in Washington talking to each other, but frankly, you're getting your news via filter of your friends. Mm -hmm. And so you get an echo chamber within your own group because... Yeah. By, by the way, these concerns are not new. Now, you were not around when Martin Luther was around, right? Thank you for that. <laughs> and, but, but let's talk about, remember, books. Right? We forget, right? None of us were alive, postscript. But you can read about it using Google. And uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that society has always faced this question of the benefit of information. We and I personally believe very strongly that more information is better even if it's wrong. Right? And let's start from the premise that more information, more empowerment is fundamentally the correct answer. Uh, in our work together with Jared and all the, the traveling we did, and I should start by saying that when I became executive chairman, we decided to wander around the world and actually sort of, I'm a, a person who believes that you should go and actually show up, right? So we visited all these countries, you know, Chad and Iran, uh, China, Iran, Iraq, um, North Korea, Cuba, or Afghanistan. We went everywhere. And it's amazing how powerful the need for information is and how information starved everyone is. So let's start by celebrating, and this goes back to your earlier argument about the case for optimism, that we are busy empowering people in a way that is fundamentally different. And if you're a person in a poor country, a dollar a day, the mobile phone is not just your phone, it's your source of entertainment, it's your source of protection against authorities that, mis that, that misjudge you, et cetera, so forth and so on. So that phone represents everything in terms of modernity to you and it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So we set out at Google to sort of wire the world, connect the world, get that information out. I am absolutely convinced that these questions about validity, good information, and bad information will be sorted out. I use the troll example to simply say it's a straightforward technological solution to an evil behavior, right? It's easy to do, we did it, it can be replicated. And there'll be more such solutions. Well, let me, let me take one. Recently, Several people from the technology world, including Bill Gates and, and Stephen Hawking and some others, have gotten together to warn about the threats of artificial intelligence. I, and, don't, I don't agree with them. Well, that, and that's, that's, that's what I want to get at. You know, artificial intelligence kind of the most potent idea on the horizon that most people don't understand. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I... I, I, I uh, interacting with uh, Nick Bostrom, a uh, philosopher, who's been looking at artificial intelligence. And he talked to a lot of people who are in development. And they, you know, when they talk about true, real artificial intelligence, when does it get here? Some say 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Nobody says never. Everybody says it's around the corner. We, we, we have people at the Pentagon talking about how do you use it to fight a war. How do, how, how do you see using it for, for good on the global stage? The reason I don't agree with these claims is the, the, by far the largest danger to humanity is nuclear conflict. And the second one is the lack of attendance to the climate change issues. 
Right, so, so let's get the facts out in terms of death and impact and so forth. And, and for the record, since we're in Washington, climate change is real. It's actually occurring as we speak, right? Um, now, so let me talk a little bit about AI because everybody here's knowledge about AI is largely from movies where the AI always wins and the person always loses. And that's not how I see it. Uh, today, when you use Google Translate, when you use many of our voice services, you're using incredibly sophisticated artificial intelligence. You can, for example, on, a, on an Android phone, you can speak in one language, and on another Android phone, in another part of the world, it will come out in another language. That's done using complicated mathematical processes, um, which is, by the way, it's all statistical. It's not based on a dictionary, and it's remarkable. People use this every day. Um, if you take a look at our Google Photos, what you do is we classify photos. And we learn, if you, have enough, if you show us enough pictures of, pictures of elephants, we can say, when you give us a new picture, there's an elephant in that picture, or whatever animal you care about. But we can do much more than that. Um, because computer vision is now better than human vision, we can do self-driving cars. And even if you're yourself a little concerned about self-driving cars, you might prefer to have your teenager be in a self-driving car, especially when he or she has been out at night, right? So start thinking about the lives saved from this technology. All of that is AI at some level. There are technical teams, including at Google and Alphabet called DeepMind, that are working on beginning to manipulate concepts. And the idea would be that you'd be able to ultimately have an assistant that would give you some advice. Now, most people's lives are full of boring or crappy activities. I have to do this, I have to do that, and so forth and so on. If we can just make people more productive. That's, that's the kind of optimism I was looking for. It's true. It really is. No, Think about true. all the time you waste waiting at the bus stop, waiting for the car, waiting for the airplane, so forth and so on. So in our book, we talk about uh, you wake up in the morning, you look at the wall, and you say, do I have to get up? And the wall says, no. And then if you're awake enough, you say, why? And he said, well, you were supposed to go to the airport, but the airplane's going to be late, and your boss doesn't care, and plus the car's downstairs, so you can go back and sleep for 18 minutes. Now, by the way, will you sleep for 18 minutes? Yes, you will, right? You will take that offer every day, right? Right. So it's, it's, when you start putting it in a framework of these are human empowering, that they're tools that make us smarter, it looks very different than these apocalyptic visions. Now, sure, we can imagine the following scenario. So what's going to happen is we're going to build an AI. The AI is going to get so smart. It's going to modify itself. It's going to leave the lab. It's going to go to Europe. It's going to come back. It's going to assemble an army. It's going to send them back in a cyber war against the United States. I read that script. Right? It's a movie. Right? It's highly unlikely that any of these particular scenarios will happen. Well, here's a scenario that is likely. Okay. A bunch of drones, now called a swarm, uh, that, uh, that was the Star Trek movie. That was the Star Trek movie, but it's it also... It's a really good movie, by the way. Yeah. Well, it, this is a little more mundane, but it's actually happening. Um, will be developed, and they'll be able to go out and identify targets, and if one of them's knocked out, another one will be able to step in. And big industrialized tech countries are going to be able to go and wage wars against poor countries, and the rich countries won't have soldiers fighting and dying and bleeding. Only the poor countries will. And, and that seems like a direction that we are potentially going in. But I, I, one of the things that's interesting can, can about can you is that there are countermeasures that may also. Emerge. There are all sorts of ways of, of answering these, these sort of latent fears. The first thing is we don't really know. Uh, so let me say, but I, I'm actually worried about something. And I'm worried about the gap between developing countries that don't have 
a knowledge economy and the rate at which the sort of advanced countries which have a knowledge economy are moving forward. I think it does not serve the world well to have a gap between the poor countries and the rich countries that's based on information, access, knowledge, education, or these kinds of systems. And I think you, you called it exactly right. There's a, it's pretty likely that the advanced countries at least can conceive of war in the kind that you described, where the other countries are busy just struggling to get through the day. I'm not sure that I'm, I'd prefer not to have the war in the first place, but I, I think that the increasing inequality is a threat to what I view as the global emerging consensus of optimism. So this global optimism goes something like this. Men and women can live and work together. We have tolerance for gays and minorities and so forth and so on. Um, and, and we sort of collectively make the information resource of the world get stronger. That, uh, that view, that sort of consensus that I've operated under a long time is under threat from all of these sort of concerns. So if I go back to um, the AI side, let's think about cyber war. It's pretty clear to me that if there were a war, a real war between country A and country B, it would, be, it would start with cyber attack. And the reason I say that is that it's much easier to take out your opponent's weapons, right, before they shoot at you. Makes perfect sense. And indeed, we've seen this in some of the skirmishes that have happened so far. So everyone will sort of try that for a while. So who has the advantage in that particular case, in the AI side? Well, it's obvious, right, that the cyber AI attacker would have the advantage because they're smarter. Hmm. Very interesting. So these AI systems are completely dependent upon the amount of training data they can get. And the defender who gets attacked all day has far more training data than the attacker who attacks exactly once before they're exported. So who do you think has the advantage now? Might be that the defender, right, who's constantly being tested Right, a new set of rules. Uh, Jared has pointed out, and I, and I agree with this, that one of the problems with cyber is we, we don't have a doctrine of mutual destruction and a notion of limits. Right? So what penalty does country A pay if it does some kind of cyber attack in country B? What's the natural both limit or the penalty that they pay? We haven't figured that out as a, in a global society. Uh, that was figured out during the nuclear period. Um, and we need to find that balance now. Isn't part of the problem, you know, if you went into the national security or foreign policy community in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, and you wanted to get to the top, you had to speak nuclear. You had to speak throw weights. Right. Now, cyber is part of every life, or everyday life, right? It's part of this election. Cyber threats on the defense side are key. But also, we've seen we use these technologies to reach and touch people, change politics, change the way people believe. So this is infused in everything. But we don't seem to have leaders who actually understand the tools. Well, we will develop them. I mean, when you, if you go back to the nuclear stuff, so I I'm, I'm work on innovation for the military, and I've had a chance to go visit some of the nuclear facilities. And I now understand that during the 50s and 60s, a very large core competency was developed in this area. These are incredibly smart people. They have their own doctrines and their own knowledge and so forth and so on. And they're now housed in these national labs. Right? There's an enormous cost to the country and presumably because of the perceived threat or real threat from the Soviet Union and other parties. So we're going to do something like that but not the same here. We're going to have to deal with this uh, cyber vulnerability, cyber attack question, but it won't require the kind of labs and level investment that it did in nuclear. But we're going to have to give strong technical people who really understand this. For example, in the military, the people I met all have PhDs in physics. 
right? So you have to have the same level of competency in government, and not just in the United States, but also in other governments as well. Well, let's, let's think about governments a second. I think that's a, you know, here we are in Washington. And we've seen technological change uh, in other industries have certain effects. It accelerates. Um, it amplifies. It adds volatility. One of the things it almost always does is it disintermediates uh, or, uh, or decentralizes. It distributes. It changed the real estate business that way, the financial business that way. It's changed the entertainment business that way. Um, everywhere you look. Not government. It has changed politics, but not government. Right. Well, and, 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 and one argument you can make is that the political system is very competitive. After all, every couple of years we have all these new candidates, we have new strategies, we have a lot of money. There's, you know, it's a, it's a business in that sense. Whereas the government, by the way it's structured, is largely a monopoly. It's a single provider of a service and less responsive to the kinds of pressures that businesses and even the political system are required. Right, and so, you know, I mean, you can imagine, not too distant future, that we could change the way we tax people, where small increments of money are taken from you as you use something, buy something, use a highway, um, so that the taxes are based more on who's using well, them. By the way, the most obvious thing to do is to eliminate cash, as we know it. Right. If you eliminated cash, right, the way we know it, and you did it all digitally, which would be relatively simple to do, you could use that to eliminate a great deal of the corruption and problems. Uh, we did a study on illicit networks. I had no idea there was the amount of illicit networks of arms and human trafficking and so forth, even going throughout the United States. The kind of technological tools that are available today would allow us to do that if we wanted to. Right, and we would also have the ability to distribute wealth to people, distribute benefits to people directly. We've learned something interesting in the past year or two. Uh, there have been a bunch of studies that show that if people are poor, the best thing you can do for them is give them money. Not services, not big aid agencies, but actually give them money and then they will use the money well. And you could distribute that to them straight to their cell phones. In fact, it's in places like Tanzania and Kenya that you're actually seeing mobile money be developed and, and it will probably leapfrog back to here. The, qu the question is why, you know, what we, I could imagine if you carry this out, governments like the United States government with far fewer people, far fewer big buildings, far well, fewer, less bureaucracy. I, I don't think there's any evidence of governments getting phys physically smaller, except in war, uh, because bureaucracies tend to self perpetuate. But I think that we can change the function that people do. Uh, remember, people used to have, have typewriters, now they use more automated ways of, of typing things. I do think that governments can be changed in a profound way because we can measure things now. I can't tell you, I serve um, on President Obama's PCAST, and when we started eight years ago, we'd have all these people come in and make their presentations on this or that and government programs, and I'd always say, well, how many users do you have? How many readers do you have? How did you measure it? Right? Nowadays, that's accepted, but even as recently as eight years ago, people didn't think to measure the theory behind the, the, the effect, efficacy of their program. You can do that now, because essentially everybody has a mobile phone. You can try things. You can, you can actually meter things out. You can uh, do whatever it is you need from a public policy perspective. It should make governments more efficient. Yeah, I, I, despite the fact that I'm very youthful looking. <laughs> why, why does that get a laugh? Thank you, Fred. Um, in, the, in the Clinton administration, I remember asking for a, a laptop. And they said, why would you need that? You know, I mean, it was, it, was, you know, it was very early days. So the pace of change has been extremely rapid. But you know, it's, it's happening elsewhere first. 
was running, I ran into a friend here who's from the UAE. And, and, and you know, in the UAE, when you get into the government, they give you, if you're a minister, they give you a, a, an iPad. And the iPad has a, all the other ministers in the government, and they've all set metrics, and they're all measured in real time, and you can actually see how you're performing as an official versus everybody else in the government. Um, and, and so it, that changes the way ministers operate yep. in a real way. Again, if we talk about government as a provider of services, there's plenty of technological improvements that can make the delivery of those services far, far more efficient, far less corrupt, and much more responsive to citizens. Well, let's talk about, you know, I, I'm watching Hafsat's, uh, the video and listening to her talk. Uh, some of the places that need the most help are some of the places to which technology is now coming. You've spent some time in those places. Talk a little bit about how you see that producing change, whether it's in areas of democracy or dealing with displaced people or security. In our travels, the thing that we learned the most was the, the sort of core hope of people. Um, we would wander around and talk to people who, from my perspective, had essentially nothing, and they were incredibly optimistic and incredibly hopeful and incredibly motivated. And it really changed my view. You know, if you watch enough television in America, you sort of get depressed no matter what. Um, so when you actually go and talk to folks, this sort of incredible sense that we want to make the world a better place for men and women everywhere is profoundly distributed. Um, if you look at over the last 20 years, we've gone from essentially nobody having access to information to now pretty much half of the world having access to this kind of information. And as you pointed out earlier, the next, in the next three or four years, we'll add another few billion users, almost all in very poor, very developing countries, and they're going to have a voice. And when they have a voice, we'll find out what they really are up to. Uh, I do think that this technology can be used to affect political change in the countries. I do think that the kind of transparency that mobile phones brings, um, for example, mediates the most extreme versions. Um, without being an expert on it, I've always thought that the, the, the horrific practice of stoning is largely eliminated because people don't want photographs to be taken of this horrific, horrific, horrific crime. So the fact that if you go back to sort of Ted Turner and, um, and satellite, commercial satellites in the 1970s, the awareness of what was going on at a country level was inspired by the launch of commercial satellites. So now we can do the same thing with mobile phones and really, really serve people everywhere. I think it's, it's worth thinking about because it connects what Hafsat was talking about, many of the people touched by what An was talking about, um, and what you were talking about, what you just said, that over the next three or four years, several billion people who did not have access to information, who have been deprived, who have been left behind, will all of a sudden have access in many respects to the same information the rest. This has never happened. That's right. There, this is this is a kind of knowledge wave that has never swept over the world. So, so one of the things that I'm proudest of is that the vast majority of those people will be using Android phones, because we're driving the phone price down and down and down as hard as we possibly can in countries like Indonesia and India, which have this large population that can be now served. Um, and our systems are such that that information that they have to say will get uploaded to our YouTube programs and those kinds of things, and you'll be able to see them. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. If you think about what happens next, right, so we're sort of talking about the phone as the vehicle for solving every problem, uh, the interconnectedness of it. 
The next sort of really interesting battle will be on the scale of the big data that you have. And that countries that can figure out how to assemble big data and use it to make the countries more effective, make better decisions, or in the case of war, use it to, to, to attack their adversaries, will ultimately be in a stronger position than the countries that say, oh, this data thing's not so important. Now, America is one of the countries that's going to lead in this. And as I said earlier with the AI stuff, the vast majority of the AI work requires a great deal of data, right? And so whenever, I'll give you an example, whenever people talk about a strategy, I always say, how much data do you have to train against? Now, that's something that five years ago, I would never have said that. What I would have said is, how smart are your scientists in programming the bizarre algorithms that are appropriate to your field? So this core shift that's occurred in computer science, which, which I'm, I'm proud to be part of and I care a great deal about, will profoundly drive the currency, if you will, of governments to focus on big data of every form. Well, let me pick up on that. And, and, and we only have four or five minutes left, but let, let me pick up on it. Um, because when you think about big data, we're moving from a world with, well, I don't know, 20 billion devices on the internet to one with 50 billion devices by, by 2020. All of those are gathering data. There's ubiquitous sensing going to be out there. We're going to have massive amounts of data. And I think back in the 1990s when in New York City, you know, they used to get police data every month. And so it took three months worth of data to determine whether there was a trend and the police would then send in some more cops. And they moved to this ComStat system where it came every day. And so after three days, you could determine a trend and you could move in. And this is a good analogy with regard to big data because we're going to have data from lots of yeah, different by places. By the way, there was a key insight in New York, which was to put, to identify the intersections where there was more crime and put more police there. Oh my God. Well, exactly. But, right? but, but, but you know, when we talk about climate change, we're going to be able to have climate data block by block in real time and provide responses in days, not in years. But interestingly, when we talk about economics, we are going to be able to look at countries. And instead of this kind of arbitrary discussion of an economy based on geography, we're going to look for real correlations. You know, and instead of going and saying, what's the US like? You know, how are we going to do it? We'll say, What's Jared's stand like? There are 10 million Jareds out there, and they really correlate. And what's the stimulus that works for the 10 million? You like that idea? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, we can work on that. I think Eric's been helping you get there, by the way. But, 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 but you know, as 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 Jared's stand goes, that's a real correlation. You know, that's a real correlation. And so, economics is going to change. My question is, are you encountering? The people who are reinventing economics, reinventing public policy, rethinking the philosophical underpinnings of governments that have people, everybody attached all the time, and they might want a referendum every day, or they might, you know, there are some big, big questions here, and I don't hear that conversation. Um, in, in many areas, this conversation occurs all day. Uh, there's a, been an explosion in people thinking about new ways of doing education, which is always important and needs a lot of work. We've got some projects there and so forth. I'm very optimistic about that. Um, I think the most interesting thing is that the technology world that I've been part of has allowed us to build a global consensus around a set of things. And I want to fight for that consensus. I think the reason everybody is here is you all agree on roughly what this consensus should be. And what's interesting is even if we don't see ourselves like that, 
fact of the matter is teenagers do. So today, if you go to a reasonably developed country, you can take a teenager from that reasonably developed country and you can move he or she to any other reasonably developed country and they can fit right in because the cultural norms, the memes, the way they behave has always been explicable to me as a parent, uh, you know, can, is, is, is continuous. And I think that, that we forget how truly small the global village is because of the connectedness, this is the theme of your day, and how powerful these tools are. Um, so the on-demand economy, right? This created Uber, right? Uber saw, Uber and its competitors solve a real problem. I was talking to my friend at Uber who said, the biggest growth is outside the US. I said, well, that's interesting. I didn't think they had that much money. And they said, yes, but more importantly, they don't have any taxis, right? So again, we take for granted that these solutions that, we, that we've stumbled into are powerful. But if you're in one of these countries where you had no mobility at all, no education before, no, no television, no entertainment, as a woman, no safety, uh, your world was being corrupted, these are life-changing, right? And that's what we're committed to doing. And that's why we selected Google to win this Diplomat of the Year Award. And I, you know, I want to say as we wrap up here, we are not arriving at optimism lightly. You know, we're we, doing it intellectually.